the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The emancipation. Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Adventures in Anarchist Autobiography by Sophie Scott Brown. When invited by a publisher to write his autobiography, British anarchist writer Colin Ward refused, explaining modestly that I've read plenty of such books and have seen how the first few chapters are the most absorbing, after which they tend to trail off into a catalogue of names, jobs and encounters. This in itself is a depressing thought. How can it be that for many people everything after childhood is an anticlimax? And I'm mindful too of Orwell's sharp comment that an autobiography that is not a history of failures is a pack of lies. What he offered instead was Influences, a slim volume discussing a selection of writers and thinkers that had inspired him on particular topics. In fact, his objections rang slightly false, not least because the anarchist intellectual tradition boasts some of the most outstanding examples of the genre, several of which, including Kropotkin's memoirs and Rudolf Rocker's The London Years, Ward had personally written introductions for. In addition to this, he had also named Alexander Hetzin's My Life and Thoughts as one of the most important books in shaping his political thinking, going as far as to place Hetzin's loquacious life history after over Kropotkin's Mutual Aid, the more standard text for social anarchist thinkers of his generation. But then perhaps it made sense that he should have preferred Hetzin on politics. After all, anarchism for all its variations is broadly defined by its recognition of and reverence for individual agency, its emphasis on practical direct action and its hostility towards anything remotely resembling intellectual vanguardism. In many respects, this makes autobiography, or biography, appropriate intellectual vehicles for anarchism. As Ray Monk, biographer of Wittgenstein, argued in his article Life Without Theory, a very Wittgensteinian defence of biography as intellectual history, biography works close to the ground. It tends to privilege situational logics, contingency, context and chance, over excessive abstract theory. It offers an account of humans as creative beings but within constraints. It is then an ideal pedagogy for a post-utopian anarchist like Ward. As Australian left libertarian George Molnar wittily observed, freedom is difficult, as any anarchist biography would attest. Denied the comfort of teleological certainty, how better to shore up your wavering nerves than through reflecting on the stories of others? Moreover, Ward's own eventual effort, Influences, with its compilation of extracts, quotes and commentaries, was in its own way an interesting experiment in anarchical life writing, but more on that later. What I believe Ward meant by his comment was that, to him, a particular type of autobiographical writing no longer made sense, as indeed anarchism itself as a grand narrative no longer resonated. 
In this essay, I offer a brief survey of anarchist autobiographical writing between the 19th and 20th centuries. And I suggest that while the writers were naturally responding to the conditions, circumstances and cultural mores of their place and times, it would be wrong to overdetermine the distinctions as a basic transition from a 19th century classical anarchism with its total revolutionary ambitions to a 20th century new anarchism contemplating its own failure and cultivating instead a pseudo-spiritual cult of the individual. In fact, in each case, albeit with different emphases, all anarchist life accounts move between personal, public and political registers, which are sometimes synthesised, but at other times they come into fruitful conflict with one another. Nevertheless, what can be said is that the earlier examples demonstrate a more assured sense of anarchism as a political identity. Later efforts do not show that in the same way, but although less confident about the movement and of themselves in relation to it, they are no less convinced of anarchist ontology, or in other words, the validity of anarchist ideas in understanding and describing human experience in the world. So moving first to the 19th century, it is tempting and not entirely inaccurate to call this the age of the revolutionary epic. Big, bold accounts either tracing or anticipating the inevitable unfolding of anarchism as a social idea and a personal philosophy over time and space. Within this general structure, however, there was a lot of complexity, nuance and experimentation. One trend here was the revolutionary confession, but this owed relatively little to the intimate spiritual unburdening of St Augustine. This was more of an intellectual confession, or more accurately still, a philosophical profession. The individual here is relevant insofar as they are the source, or even just the mouthpiece of the ideas, but the stress is very much on projecting those ideas outwards into the world. Indeed, while often described by contemporaries as memoirs, it is harder for us, accustomed as we are to a certain amount of self-reflection in a piece of memory work, to really comprehend them as autobiographical at all. They are closer, perhaps, to what we would call a memorandum. The classic example here was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon's Confessions of a Revolutionary, first published in 1849 and offered, he explained, to assist future historians of the February Revolution. Proudhon makes his position on autobiography clear from the start. I have nothing to say about my private life, he says. It does not concern others. I have always had little taste for autobiographies and am not interested in anyone's affairs. History and the novel have no attraction to me, except insofar as I find in them, as in our immortal revolution, the adventures of ideas. My political life began in 1837 in full Philippist corruption. From then on, Proudhon confines his presentation of self to his role as an anarchist public intellectual and revolutionary activist. It is worth remembering that he was writing this, as he indicated, in the wake of the February Revolution, which led to the abdication of King Philip and the proclamation of the Second Republic. And this was also the time of the tremendous wave of revolutionary activity that swept across Europe. It was then his ethos or credibility as an anarchist advocate that he most needed to confirm publicly. Another example is Michel Bakunin's God and the State, which his editors, consequent editors, Carlos Cafiero and Alice Recluse, described as a fragment of a memoir. Here again, like Proudhon, the work is devoted to setting out a thorough materialist account of anarchism, but also, and more importantly, defining the persona of the anarchist. So, for example, he says... 
We recognise then the absolute authority of science. We declare all other authorities false, arbitrary and fatal. But we reject the infallibility and universality of the savant. In each case, we refers to an anarchist ideal type. And the significance here was to create a non-doctrinaire model of an anarchist persona in contradistinction to Marx and a Marxist. Alternatively, there was another model of anarchist autobiography on offer, something closer to a revolutionary Bildungsroman, the radical coming to radical consciousness. In contrast to the direction of travel in the confessions approach, the Bildungsroman sets up a more balanced dialogue between the external world and states of mind, charting how each intrude upon the other. Ultimately, however, the result was a reasonably coherent revolutionary self. So the two best-known examples are Tolstoy in his autobiographical semi-fictional trilogy, and then, of course, as Alexander Herzian, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the anarchist fellow traveller, who um, is probably one of the greatest autobiographers of all times. And he is particularly interesting because, although the core of his beliefs were settled very early on, his life story becomes a continual process of testing and of being tested, of trialling and of questioning those beliefs. I would like, however, to briefly highlight Kropotkin's Memoirs for Revolutionary, published in 1899, as probably the most exemplary example of this style. For a start, it follows a developmental process which begins in the intimacy of a domestic space, with him as a child observing relations among his family and between his family and the servants. He continues this on into his official education and his studies in science and the experience of this is at the same time a secondary education because he becomes consciousness of the contrast between his scientific findings and the day-to-day administrative realities that he is encountering. This experience of dissonance reaches a climax propelling young Peter over his first revolutionary threshold, the realisation of a radical consciousness. This leads him in the first place towards socialism, but this quickly proves disappointing as it repeats many of the same mistakes as the old order, and so our hero is forced to cross a second threshold into the unknown terrain of anarchism. Importantly, post-conversion, his convictions are also subject to several severe tests, not only through participation in direct action, but through spells of pretty brutal imprisonment in Peter and Paul Fortress in Siberia. Although not flinching from the unpalatable details of his prison experience, Kropotkin's faith and certainty in his anarchism are not shaken, if anything they are only confirmed. And so finally, we have him as the exile, hardened from years of suffering, but more assured and more purposeful in his state of mind. And the memoir breaks off just as he reaches the final threshold of his heroic revolutionary journey and sits down to write his great classic Mutual Aid in 1899. So moving into the 20th century now, and again, if one was to broadly characterise the change in style, one might say that Epic gave way to life histories, uh, which are like less well integrated, um, slightly less coherent, much thicker contextualisation and more fragmented in form, corresponding to a much stronger interest in chaos as a definitively human psychological state. A key transitional figure and book here was Emma Goldman and her Living My Life. While Living retained many features of the revolutionary Bildungsroman, the chronological life story, the initial coming to anarchism, the series of trials and tribulations which which strengthened belief, it also contained a greater interrogation of personal life, especially those aspects not generally found in the larger revolutionary narrative. 
These, of course, owe much to Emma's gender and the fact that elements of the received anarchist account of human nature failed to adequately acknowledge and therefore comprehend distinctly female experiences of oppression. Other examples that followed in a similar vein of critical self-social inquiry included Rudolf Rocker's The London Years, which looked at a particular anarchism that developed through a particular community, namely London's East End Jewish community at a particular time, the early 20th century, and he demonstrates clearly how that situation shaped the community's interpretation in line with their own political experiences and needs. George Woodcock's Letter from the Past also carefully locates his anarchism within a specific set of relations with the Freedom Press Group and with intellectuals like Herbert Reed, Alex Comfort and, above all, Marie-Louise Benary. Again, time is important. His anarchism emerges through the war and his experiences with the peace movement. Unlike Kropotkin, this is not presented as a coming to true consciousness, more of a case of partial sympathies animated by circumstances. Similarly, Stuart Christie's series of autobiographical writings, Granny Made Me an Anarchist, Franco Made Me a Terrorist, Heath Made Me Angry, provide gleefully picaresque accounts of how certain circumstances and individuals sparked for him key beliefs or triggered him to direct actions. Herbert Reed too examined the complexity of personal consciousness and anarchism, but made a much firmer inward turn. Abandoning narrative form altogether, The Contrary Experience, published in 1963, is a series of essays focused on key episodes, vivid miniatures, if you will, not chronological and not necessarily connected to one another or particularly coherent as a whole, but all showing points of intense consciousness. His expulsion from the family home, events during his war service, his discovery of poetry, these were, for some reason or another, formative axial points. For Reed, the core psychological fact of human life was fragmentation. The suggestion here was that anarchism was the political correlate of this fact through its emphasis on social dispersal. But how this translated into a programme of systemic structural change was a little less clear, or at least it was in this book. Leila Berg's Flickr book, published in 1997, took this further still. Berg used a higher stylization than Reed to capture this notion of life as a sequence of luminous moments. She presented a series of snapshots of either very strong self-assertion or intensely remembered repression. Take, for example, this sequence that appears in the chapter England Arise, 1932. My mother says she wants me to speak nicely, not so Lancashire, so I have to take speech lessons from Miss Shaw. Today, Miss Goodwin said again, we'll assume x equals 5. I put my hand up again. She was just pretending I hadn't said anything about it yesterday. I said, why, again? I was going to say, why can't we assume it's 3? But she said I was a pest and trying to be funny. But I'm trying to understand. I love algebra, but they never really want you to find anything out. They just want to take charge of everything. But I want to find things out. In Salford, whatever street you live in, you can see hills at the end of it. Miss Shaw says, in words like singing, I should make the N and the G go together. If anything, Berg here seems to both confirm and embrace the absolute impossibility of arranging all this rich flow of experience into any kind of plan or design for living. And then there was Ward. 
As suggested earlier, Influences was a more interesting experiment in specifically anarchist life writing than he was prepared to concede, not least because in some respects it reinvented the 19th century revolutionary confession. The book was, in effect, an annotated anthology, a curated compilation of texts, fractured, filleted and read against their grain. So here, Hertzian was a political theorist, Kropotkin was an economist and Martin Buber a sociologist. They were also put into dialogue with one another. So the protean Paul Goodman conversed with the systematizer Patrick Geddes. The modest W.R. Letherby spoke to the experimental German architect Walter Siegel. On the one hand, presenting an assemblage of quotes was an ideal form for the life of a self-identified anarchist propagandist. On the other, the book was also doing a political job, demonstrating in action the theory of the social self which lay at the heart of Ward's brand of social anarchism. As he put it in the 1950s, we all live on what we borrow from others, from the past, from the enormous accumulation of printed words which comes our way in a lifetime. There is a continuous process of selection, rejection and assimilation. What is interesting, what is really us, so to speak, is what we assimilate. For Ward, then, there was no strictly private individual, Thinking was a social activity. We live constantly among texts, broadly defined. But how we break them up and recombine the pieces, that is what is unique to us. And the way he combined his pieces was into an account of anarchism as a constructive approach to social relationships. By being frank and open about the idiosyncrasy of his selections and his own handiwork in contriving them into a unity, Ward invoked a note of irony that allowed him to be both a private, fragmented individual and a coherent public anarchist. To conclude, what we could say about the distinction between the 19th and 20th century anarchist autobiographers is that, latterly, anarchist ontologies, which stress plurality and the incommensurability of certain forms of experience, have become more interesting and more convincing as accounts of the world and of the human being in that world. But this has actually had a complicating effect for political anarchism. What figures like Reed and Ward attempted to do in their autobiographical experiments is imagine new reconciliations through psychology on the one hand and irony on the other. Given the sustained and growing scepticism towards accounts of the stability of a coherent human self, it may be that the ironic mode, which, while not always the firmest ground for political aspirations, is ultimately the one that in the long run will prove the most fruitful. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.